Tonight is December 8th, it is Wednesday night, and we will be, I don't know whether we'll finish John 3 or not, I guess we'll, we'll take our time with it and see, but we've already covered verses 1 through 15, and uh, that message was called Lifted Up. Were all of you here for that? Mm-hmm. No? So most everybody. Um, Yes, it did record, and uh, I'll have it edited here shortly. Um, in in the first part of John, week the first part of John three, we talked mostly about Nicodemus and how this this man had a stone callous kind of heart, but the spark of faith caused there to be a place hewn out of the stone for Jesus, so that when Jesus uh, needed him. Nicodemus found out he needed Jesus and he uh, went and identified himself with Jesus at the lowest point in Jesus' ministry, which is actually the highest point we know, but they didn't know that, and was willing to bury Jesus. Probably got thrown out of the Jewish council and all all of those things. Then we went into Numbers 21 and we talked about what it meant to have the curse brought and why God did that and how the bronze pole or the pole with the bronze snake was sin and judgment, and it was a type. Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, you are like the Israelites, because you are an Israelite, who is being ravaged by the power of death. Sin is biting you, and you are dying. You just don't know it. And just like Moses lifted up the snake, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And he was really trying to get Nicodemus to understand and accept that his position was a bad one. He needed to change. He needed to repent. He needed to be born again. This has been a consistent message through John. Then we get to John 3.16. Still speaking to Nicodemus, still the same context, still all of those things. But John 3.16 is probably the most widely quoted verse other than judge not lest you be judged in the world. I mean, you go to a a basketball game, you go to a baseball game or something, people got it on a big sheet. And the the thing is about John 3.16 is it's rarely understood in its proper light. I mean, when we say God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and then you know the rest of it, is that a blanket thing that says that God loves every individual in the world so much that there will be no condemnation? Because that's how it's it's basically taught. Mm -hmm. I want you to listen tonight and hear. Remember when we started in John, I told you all about some principles. One is, if you interpret the word light... One way in John, it needs to be consistent throughout John. Uh, That system of interpretation is called hermeneutics. If you say that a dove is symbolic of the Spirit, then every time you see the dove, it ought to be symbolic of the Spirit. Well, keeping uh, with that system, when we talk about light here, there are some earlier references to light, aren't there? So, uh, what I'll teach tonight, hopefully is not earth-shaking, But it is a little different slant than you might normally hear, and it makes sense given all of the context. But we're not used to studying the book in all of its context. I mean, we should be, but people aren't. We're going to pick up in verse 10, just so that we can kind of get the feeling, but we're going to uh, really start to study verse 16. So uh, this is Jesus' uh, almost sarcastic statement to Nicodemus when Nicodemus is asking how somebody can be born again, and Jesus compares it with the wind. Jesus then turns and says, You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Now, that is a beautiful promise. It's something that we would tend to read and go, wow, uh, Jesus is on the cross. We look to Him. We believe in Him. We have eternal life. But if you just do that, you are escaping the sharper part, the sharper point. You're uh, not getting everything that Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying that, but what's inherent in it is the position Israel was in when that happened. Numbers 21 describes them making a covenant with God. If you give us victory when we do this, 
then we will serve you. They go on, they get impatient along the way. They begin to complain about God's program and God's way. They call His manna from heaven, which is likened under the Word in the New Testament, miserable food. And so God has to send snakes among them. Sin always causes death. That's what that's to teach. When you sin, it causes death. That's been going on since the garden. The product of sin is death. The solution for sin and God's mercy is that He provides a solution. And in this case, it was that He would take this very object of sin and He would raise it up in judgment so that when people looked at it, it would bring healing to their body. When Jesus says this to Nicodemus, it shows him, you are in sin and it is bringing death. Now, Cassidy's memorized the Scripture and the point of John, the mission statement of John is in John 20, 31 and it is, I have written this that you might believe and that in believing that Jesus is the Christ, you might have life. The whole book of John's point is you are in death and you need to cross over to life. That's why when we start in John, he starts talking about light and darkness. And that light was the life. Well, if the light was the life, what is the darkness? Death. This is consistent throughout John. You'll see a couple really difficult parables later that are not difficult if you just stay consistent. Well, why am I saying that? Because as we get into this and you realize that the book of John is about mankind being uh, covered in a shroud, veiled with the power of death, and Jesus presenting life, it takes us out of the fairy book setting. It takes us out of this idea of just, oh, uh, if you believe on Jesus, you go to heaven. Or just, uh, God so much loved the world that all you have to do is believe Jesus is who He said He is and you go to heaven. No, you are already in a state of death if you're on the planet. And in Jesus, by submitting to His total Lordship, not totally obeying Him in every way, giving your whole life to Him, you can cross from death to life. We tend to have the idea that when somebody's here, they're basically good people unless they do something bad. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. And what Nicodemus is having to come to grips with is that he's been in the journey. He's been on, uh, in the covenant plan of salvation, but he still has the power of death on him. That, that's what he's having to come to grips with. And so Jesus says, as a, as a, to expound on what he's already taught, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In the context, what are we talking about as far as perish? You won't perish as ravaged by the snake in sin. Now, isn't it ironic that death entered the world through a serpent's actions as influenced by the devil? And now we have a shadow and type from Israel's history where their, their sin caused this power of death uh, totally symbolized in a snake and they had to look up to something, a symbol of sin on a pole for, uh, for healing. And healing and salvation are the same words in Greek and in Hebrew. Okay? To be saved is to be totally healed. To be healed is to be saved from that illness. So, he's teaching him right here that this belief, this obedience to Jesus will deliver you from what is ailing you. Because... He's just made the case that Nicodemus is being ravaged by sin and and death is on him. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Now, this is a mouthful. This is the part that everybody likes. This is the part that uh, agrees with you. Well, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. There's a reason that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. And we're going to get to it. It's in the next few verses. It's the same reason you don't have to stand out of a, outside of a bar today and yell, you're going to hell! They know they're going to hell. That's why they're in the bar. They're in there trying to forget that they're going to hell. See, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because that wasn't His mission. The bronze uh, snake lifted up on the pole 
It was, it was not there to remind them that there were snakes biting them. They knew that. It was for the purpose of them being healed. It was not there to show them sin so that they would be reminded of their judgment. Although it could. I mean, that, that could be a function of it. They were already in death. And this was the graceful, the merciful solution. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. It was already in a state of death. It was already on the way down hill. So He came to present the solution. So when you get this idea, well, even Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Why are you talking to me that way? Buddy, I'm not condemning you. What you don't realize is you are already on death row. I'm talking to you about how to get a pardon. See, we're, we're not in the case where uh, David and I are two attorneys arguing for Matthew before the judge. No, the verdict has already been issued and he's going to say that. He's going to say, you are already sentenced to death. I'm offering you a way to find life. Well, this was new for the Jews. It's not, it shouldn't be new. It's just new to their thought because they're just like you, just like me, just like the church today. We think we are well and have no need of a doctor. When in reality, we are wretched and blind and poor and pitiful and need to go and get with the king to get right. This is Jesus' whole point. He's trying to get Nicodemus to see, nobody, you got a big problem and you don't realize it. And he was merciful with Nicodemus. I never realized how merciful he was. I, in fact, I've taught about John 3 and John 4 as two opposing ways to deal with people. How God hammers the uh, religious leaders, but is so kind to the woman at the well. He was equally as kind to Nicodemus. He just dealt with him differently because they had a different problem. The woman at the well knew she was being ravaged by the snake. Nicodemus thought he had his foot on the snake's head when in reality it was having his way with Nicodemus. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Before we, we get there, back to this idea of every individual. Proverbs 6 teaches it. Uh, quite a few places in the Bible teaches it. There are things that God absolutely hates. Now, here, here's something that is a shocker. And I'm not going to take the time to go through the Scripture because you guys have heard it. And anybody on the CD, if they want to hear it, they need to come to church. But there are people that God hates. But I thought we, we loved the person and we hated the sin. No, there are people listed in the Scripture, kinds of people, that God hates. If you have feet that rush to slay the wicked, God hates you. I don't say that. The Bible says that. Say, well, uh, but I, I thought anybody could be saved. Anybody that is inclined towards God, that will reach out, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If God can get you to a place in your life and He's working in every man's life to cause people to call out, then you can be saved. But if you are so inclined to evil, if you refuse God on every turn and you are doing wicked things, God is not for you. He is against you. But what about for God so loved the world? That is like saying, I love Settler's Way so much that I'm going to fix it. So, but I can't believe you stepped on that roach. That roach is a part of that elementary school. How could you step on it? That roach is an inhabitant of that school. How dare you do it? Well, I love the school enough to get the pest out of the school. That is the context in which this is written. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This, this is for the purpose of cleansing the world. The world here is the entire world system. If He had wanted to say this differently, this is how He would have said it. For God so loved every individual in the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. It's not what he said. Now, am I telling you God doesn't love everybody? Yes, yes, I am. I know that's shocking. And I probably should spend the time to teach about why. Maybe another day. Say, well, how then do you determine, and what does this mean, whoever believes in Him? Not everyone will believe in Him. But I don't know who they are. 
I don't have the ability to determine whether or not you have the potential for faith. I would say every human being has the potential for faith. And the Bible says God desires that all men everywhere be saved. And yet we know they're not. And you hear David in Psalm 58 praying about breaking the teeth out of the mouths of the wicked and bathing your feet. He says, there will be a day when the righteous will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. But God is love. He gives you the verdict right here. I know this is going to be a hard teaching for some to swallow. And probably not here, but these teachings go beyond this, these walls. This is going to be hard. And it, it doesn't sit well with people. Remember something. When they ate the Passover, they ate the bread with bitter herbs. You know why? The word is sometimes unpleasant to eat. It is a hard thought to look out at a mass populace. You would like to think, oh, God just loves everybody. If the guy is uh, molesting his daughter and pulling the toenails off of his son and is wicked and is corrupting these children and has spurned God at every possible turn, God may not love him. God might be against him. How do you think God struck Herod dead? I mean, let me ask you something. How do you think that happened? We've seen instances in the Bible of a mercy killing, like Uriah, where God, uh, the guy reached out to touch the ark and God took him out to prevent him from doing something that would ruin a shadow and type in the Bible. That's a mercy killing. You might even make that case with Ananias and Sapphira. I, I, I don't know. We have to look at that in more depth. Herod's not one. The guy claimed equality with God or at least didn't deny it. Some men's sins trail behind them, Paul said. Others go ahead reaching the place of judgment. Friends, Herod was there. God was against him, so he killed him. Oh, but God loves him. He just hates what he did. A tree's known by its fruit. You are what you do. We don't like that, do we? He's a just God. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Why did God not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world? That's the answer. Because if you don't believe, you are condemned already. You need to look at the people that are going by and I want you to weep for the lost. I want you to be very concerned that people are going to hell. But you never need forget. There is not a person out there that is not a death row inmate. There is not a person that you meet anywhere at any time that is not deserving of death. It is mercy, it is God's grace that He has lavished upon us that provides for a way out of death. Disobedience brought death. And all men have been bound over to disobedience. There is one way out. Get out of your head this idea, oh, well, they're all pretty good people. We've all bought into that. They're not pretty good people. They're pretty good people when you compare them with each other. We are all wretched when compared with God. Right. Say, but what about us in Christ? Well, that's a totally different thing. His righteousness has become your righteousness. So are you better than them? No. You were also on death row. You got the letter from the king that pardoned you. And you accepted it. The rest have the same letter sitting outside the jail cell and they're spitting on it. Now there are some precious few, some stones, some precious stones out there buried that just don't know what's in the letter. They don't understand how it works. But the vast majority don't care. They're scared to open it because that would acknowledge that they were guilty. See, it's almost like the governor says... You know, David, Matthew, Mandy, if you just admit you committed the crime, I'll pardon you. That's all I really want. I just want you to admit that you were weak, that you did it, and ask for my help, and then I'll pardon you. But you're sitting there with your arms crossed going, now, if I admit it, they'll know I'm guilty. So instead, I'm just going to wait and see what happens. I'm already sentenced to death, but who knows? That's what it's like to refuse salvation. It says... Uh, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. He's going to fix the whole world system. 
The problem was death. The solution is life. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Now, isn't it interesting? Jesus has not been to the cross. Jesus has not been in the grave for three days. He has not resurrected. He has not presented Himself as a perfect sacrifice before the Father. He has not descended into hell and taken the captives uh, out, of the, the righteous out of Abraham's bosom into the presence of the Father. He has not held the keys of death and life and proclaimed to everyone in Tartarus that they could not stop Him. He's not done any of those things and He's issuing the verdict. Why? How? What verdict are we talking about? And remember, He's talking to Nicodemus. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. What on earth is He talking about? Where else do we have life mentioned in the book of John? Or light, rather. That's a little Freudian slip. It's in the first chapter. Let's turn back there. Starting in uh, verse 1 of John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light, which is also life, shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Then he goes on to explain this relationship about coming to his own. Go back to John 3. This is the verdict. Light or life has come into the world, but men loved death or darkness instead of life because their deeds were evil. What Jesus is saying is the verdict has been issued since the beginning. Sin, disobedience caused death to come in the world. The verdict is life is now present. I don't have to come to condemn anybody. The verdict's already issued. You are guilty if you do not accept me. I am life. See, the verdict is when the judge speaks and tells you what's going to happen to you because of what you did. When did that happen? When was the verdict issued? Be a Jew here for a minute. Think about it. In the garden. God said, if you do this, this will happen. That was the verdict. It was issued from the very beginning. This is how the Lamb can be slain before the foundations of the earth were laid. God knew that there would be a need for the Lamb. And the moment that He says, if you do this, this will happen, He also had known they would do it. He allowed all men to be bound over to death so that He could save all men who would come to Him. The verdict being issued. Why is the verdict issued? Why is Jesus saying this? He's telling Nicodemus, you're no different than all of the others. This is the verdict. All of you are in darkness. All of you are in death. I am the light of life. I mean, He's explaining to him. He's bound over to sin like everybody else. The Jews like Scriptures like, uh, oh, the uh, uh, blessed are you, Galilee of the Gentiles. For in the darkness, a light is shining. Oh, it's okay for the Gentiles to be in darkness. Surely they're in death and they need life. But we, we are in the plan of salvation. We by heritage are saved. The problem is they never stopped being disobedient. They never lived in the faith. So they never consequently got into the life. Some did. But as a nation, they did not. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Life, or light, has come into the world, but men loved death, darkness, instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates light or the life, and will not come into light or the life for fear that his deeds will be exposed. For you to enter into Christ, you have to acknowledge, you have to be willing to go, wow, I'm already under the power of death. I have already fouled up. 
what I'm doing stinks and I need help. Then you can step into Christ. People don't do it because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. You spend from your conscious years, from about seven years old on through the rest of your life trying to convince the whole world that nothing is wrong with you. That your deeds are good and that you're basically a good person. And that everybody ought to like you. And some ought to even look up to you. And what the Gospel requires of you is to take a look at yourself and go, wow, it's not true. It's all a sham. I'm like every other human being. I'm dying. And everything that I do seems to cause it to happen faster. I need your help, God. It's easier for some to get there than others. Jesus is laying it all out there for this leader of, uh, among Israelites. I mean, somebody who sat in a position appointed by Moses himself. He's laying it out there. He's letting him know you're no different than everybody else because he wants him to receive. And Nicodemus eventually did. We covered that Sunday. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. And what is light? Life. But whoever lives by the truth comes into life so that it may be seen plainly what he has done has been done through God. Isn't that awesome? The whole purpose of equating this life with light, the whole reason is because when the light comes in, it pushes out death, it pushes out darkness, and it clearly reveals what God has done in you. A person goes and hides in the darkness, bars or dimly lit rooms for a reason. It's to conceal the ugliness of what has happened. God is the opposite. He calls you out of that so it can be seen plainly what He's done through you. You know, it's not enough in a bar that you have to drink to be able to go home with someone. But then the setting has to be where you can't even see the person really. That's because people that are in evil things love the darkness. It masks who they are. If you want to be saved, and you guys are saved, I know that, but if nothing else, this teaches you about the Gospel. If someone wants to be saved, the first step is for them to look at themselves with what I call sober judgment. I had a job one time cleaning ice machines. And most of these ice machines were in bars. And the most amazing thing is to walk into a bar at about 10 o'clock in the afternoon when they're opening up from the night before and look at the floors and look around. It smells like urine. It's filthy. And it's a disgusting, nasty place. Some because they haven't cleaned from the night before. But the biggest difference that I noticed is all the lights were on. And you could see everything. And it was disgusting. Now, at night, a few hours later, in the darkness, with people that are not focused on living in the truth, in there, it seems like kind of a fun, kind of a happening place. Neat place to go meet people. A, kind of a substitute for the church. You can sit next to somebody. Y'all can be friendly. You have camaraderie. Dare I say koinonia. A godlike fellowship with someone. Instead of worshiping and being happy from the Spirit, you're able to ingest something that gives you that same warm sensation. When you have a problem, you can discuss it with somebody on the other side of a pulpit. The bartender. And then, if you need direction for your life, there's always at least one loudmouth a couple stools down that's willing to point his finger like a prophet and tell you exactly what you should do. But it's all done in darkness. Because it's a facade and it's a sham. And when the light enters, you can see it for what it is. That's how our lives are. And as the light enters, we don't hide. You know, when somebody shines a bright light on you, what is the first thing you tend to do? You turn parts of you away from it because they're sensitive to the light. It hurts. Now, that actually brings vitamins to you. It causes release of certain chemicals in your brain that are good chemicals. But you have a natural tendency to want to shy away from it. Your pupils even constrict to keep some of it out. 
That is a natural thing. The same thing happens in Christianity. You embrace the light as it shines on you and it feels good, but there are little parts that make you want to wince and turn away and and try to constrict and keep closed so that it doesn't get in there because that's your secret, your private place. Maybe it's the way we talk to our wives, man, at home when nobody's around. Maybe it's the way you act in traffic on the way to work when no one's around. Maybe it's what you said to the telemarketer yesterday on the phone. You know, in the Air Force, they define integrity as what you do when no one is looking. And that's, that's awesome. That's a true statement. Except there is always someone looking. And we need to remember we were dead men that have been pardoned. You know, it's one thing for me to rejoice in my freedom. I can walk around as, a, as an American and say... Thank you, God, I'm free. But it's a whole other thing to have, real, to have been confined and been on death row and been facing a chair and then be freed, isn't it? And if that were you, you would think twice about even jaywalking, would you not? Having been under the power of death, ready to be killed, you, would, you probably wouldn't even speed again. You wouldn't take that freedom for granted, would you? Well, we in Christ have recognized that the verdict has gone out and all men everywhere are condemned. And we have chosen to take the pardon to get into the One who is life. It's a precious thing. We need to be very careful how we treat it so that we don't look as if we have trampled on that pardon letter and treated it as something that was not valuable, something that was not precious, that we've not trampled the Son of God underfoot and treated something holy as something that is unholy or common. It's the most precious thing that has ever happened because it saved your life. You need to remember that. We need to think about that. And you know what else? When you do that, all of a sudden today's problems don't seem very big. You know why? If you realized yesterday you were going to die at midnight and now you've made it past midnight because you got a pardon... Whatever problem comes your way today is not as big as the one you just crossed over yesterday, is it? Next time, you're sitting there stressing because you have ten days to do something. And you're thinking, oh my God, I can't. The world's coming to an end. You need to stop and remember, wait, I was dead. I was just as good as dead. And God delivered me. How am I at all going to get stressed about something as silly as what I wear, what I eat, or any other kind of pride of life. You see, it puts things in perspective, doesn't it? The light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what He has done has been done through God. Hallelujah. After this, now we are done with Nicodemus. We're moving on. I'm going to go ahead and finish John 3 because I want to get to the woman at the well for our next service. After this, Jesus and His disciples went out into the Judean countryside where where He spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put into prison. An argument, this is funny, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Okay? Baptism has always drawn an argument. I don't know why. There's scarcely a subject that is more argued. The only one that is more argued in Christianity that I can think of is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But baptism in water has drawn more argument from every side. Some say you need to be sprinkled. Others say you need to be submerged. Some say it must be in the name of Jesus. Others say it must be in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Some say you must speak in tongues when you come out of the water or you're not saved. Others don't believe that you do speak in tongues or it's the devil. All of this right around a ceremonial washing. Some say you do it to babies. Others say you only do it to consenting adults. The same kind of arguments have been going on forever. Okay? In light of what we just read, in light of what Jesus just said to Nicodemus, what would you think is most important? The method of baptism or leaving the darkness and coming into the light? Mm -hmm. I agree. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. Friends, if you learn that phrase, a man can receive only that which is given him from heaven, it will free you from all kinds of fear, worry, and competition. And competition's probably worse than all of them. You will not need to compete with sister better than you who's sitting on your right or your left. Because you realize that you've come into the light so that it's recognizable everything you've done has only been God working through you. That's the last part of what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You will realize that you only have that which you've received from heaven. And what does that mean? If you don't have it, it's because God chose not to give it to you. Does that make you a bad person? Does that make you inferior? Does that make you lesser than? No, it just means you don't have it. What's it you're calling? It's like the pinky getting upset that he's not as long as the middle finger. They have different functions. They're both useful. I'd like to keep both of them, wouldn't you? A man can only receive that which is given him from heaven. I would like to send that to every pastor of every church as a one-liner. You know why? This frees me from having to worry whether Joel Osteen's church is just a little bigger than mine. Or a whole lot bigger. It's what God's given him. He's received what God's given him from heaven. I don't have to compete with that. I don't have to be measured against it. I don't even have to worry about it. What do I have to worry about? What I have received from heaven. Isn't that a freeing statement? Those of you that are now in Christ, isn't that awesome? You don't need to spend all of your time worried about how Pastor Pierrot's finances work. Don't have to. That's what Pastor Pierrot's received from heaven. We don't all have to spend all of our time sitting around worried about how Mandy's handling her house. That's what Mandy's received from heaven. See, this frees us from the obligation to be concerned about things that God doesn't want us to be concerned about. Isn't that great? I love that. I really do love that. I don't have to compete with anybody. I don't have to be overly concerned about what the Joneses are doing. I just have to be concerned with what God has given me. Boy, if the farmer would only worry about his own field, the farmer's life would be a lot easier. But we're just like those old dumb cows. You ever been out in a pasture? What do cows do? They lean on a barbed wire fence to check out the grass on the other side. It's just like the grass on this side. But they're convinced that because you put a fence there, it must be better on the other side. Christians are the same way. Oh, this is needed. It's such a blessing. Three months later, they're sitting in the same pew, in the same place, same anointed people, doing the same anointed things, but they're convinced that it must be better somewhere else. And so they run from church to church to church. A man can... Receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, this is John the Baptist, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. Not only did John the Baptist not feel a need to try to compete with Jesus, he went a step further. He said, guys, my only purpose was to be here to prepare a way ahead of him. And you know what? When the best man's in a wedding, he's not jealous that the groom and the bride are running off together. He's full of joy when he hears them together. He said, that kind of joy is mine. 
And it's now complete. Because he was realizing that Jesus was gaining a following, which was the reason that John the Baptist had lived. Why? Because that's what he received from heaven. Jesus had one calling. John the Baptist had another. Well, bring that right down into the church. Bobby has one calling. David, another. Those two can't compete. They, they wouldn't know how to do each other's calling if they could compete. Because each has received what God intended for them to have. You know, it would be just as silly as taking the brain surgeon and making him a diesel mechanic and the diesel mechanic and making him a brain surgeon. They're both useful parts of society. They both have their own roles. And they're out of water when you try to reverse them. We can save ourselves a lot of grief by just listening to John the Baptist when he said a man can only receive that which is given him from heaven. Here's the next thing that is awesome. He said, that joy is mine and is now complete. This is John 3, verse 30. He must become greater, I must become less. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to focus on how Jesus can become greater in your life and you can become less. Let's take this right back to where Nicodemus was for a second. To John 3.16 through 21. What was the verdict that went out to all mankind? All mankind was under the power of death. The light, life, had shown up. All mankind was already condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn. Already condemned. Well, once you realize that, is it hard for you to become less and Jesus to become more? No. In fact, you start to look at your own life, as Paul said, and count it all as garbage, rubbish, dung. That's what Paul actually said. He, he counted it as dung, diaper fillings. See, this is not meaning that Christians walk around with no confidence, that Christians walk around feeling incompetent, that Christians walk around feeling inept. Quite the contrary. We feel confident, competent, able to do all things. But how? Through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. See, it's a shedding of the way you think things ought to be done. It's a putting off of what you were born into and accepting of Jesus and His teaching. That is coming into the light out of darkness. He must become greater, I must become less. Now in the natural, what, what literally was John talking about? His prominence in Israel. Everybody's been running out to me. I didn't do a miracle. I didn't do anything. I just did what God told me to do. I've been pointing to Jesus from the beginning. I've been telling everybody He's the one, not me. Now it's time for me to become less and Him to become greater. How did God accomplish that? He allowed Him to be killed. So God would do that? Yeah, He would. You named me a prophet that wasn't killed. Name me a prophet that wasn't killed. Isaiah was said to be sawed in two. How about that? Uh, Daniel, thrown in a fire, thrown in a lion's den, under a sentence of death, I don't know how many times. If the whole purpose for a prophet is to come and teach people that they're under the power of death and that there's a way out in, in life, they can't very well fear death, can they? You know? You can't, you can't be a swimming instructor and be scared to death to get in the water. You know? The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. This is not all that unlike when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus earlier a few paragraphs and he said, hey, Nobody's been into heaven except me and I came from there. This is his method of authority. It's what, what he's saying is my authority is derived from the very highest place. Why did Jesus say that to Nicodemus? Nicodemus derived his authority from an earthly figure, Moses, who received it from a heavenly figure. Right? So Jesus was saying, hey, I came straight from heaven. I trump whatever it is that you think you know. John the Baptist is seconding that. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. 
The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Now, in its context, that's speaking of Jesus. For God, the one uh, God sent speaks the words of God, and God gives the Spirit without limit. From that, you can derive that Jesus had the Spirit without limit, right? I mean, that's obviously what He was saying. Is that what it says, though? No, it says God gives the Spirit without limit. Here's something that is neat that you just need to think about. If God gives His Holy Spirit, which is His character, His power, I mean, the Holy Spirit is God. If He gives that without limit, what limits it? I mean, if He gives it without limit, what limits it? It's us. You can receive as much of God's personality, His uh, attributes, His divine power, His teaching, His wisdom, as you'll allow yourself to receive. You know what constrains us most of the time? Us. What we want. What we fear. You know, all of those things. Who we think we are. What will happen to us if. You know? Uh, think about this. You're, you're Joshua for a moment. God has told you, uh, I want you to go take that city. Okay? You're thinking all the ways you can take the city. And God says, no, none of those are going to work. I want you to walk around it and don't say anything. Uh, after seven days, I'm going to do something there. Cool. You would have the opportunity to have God work through you for a powerful, powerful miracle, unlike nothing that has ever happened. But do you have to? No. He could have as much of God working in his life as he wanted, or as little of God working as he wanted. He didn't have to be obedient to that. He was, and we honor him for it, but he didn't have to be. See, the light is shining out there for all men The verdict's already out. Everybody's already guilty. There's a pardon right there for all men. You can have as much of it as you want, but most refuse all of it. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath, God's wrath remains on Him. Do you see a consistent theme all the way through John? From the very beginning, he begins talking to Nicodemus about a need for change. Well, why do I need to change? Then he moves him to a place where he's teaching him about the snake. You're like Israel. You're being ravaged by death. The power of sin is eating your lunch. Right? That's why you need to change. Then he goes on and says, Hey, God loved this place enough, loved this whole system enough to send me, not to condemn it, because it's condemned already, but to save it, to save anybody who would call. And he moves right on, all the way through. He gets Nicodemus to understand, or tries to. In fact, the book of John is trying to get us all to understand. The state that you're in requires help. And then to recognize who that help is, because John 20.31, the mission statement of John says, I'm writing this so that you will believe Jesus is the Messiah, and that in believing that, you will find life. So it's natural that the place to start is for you to recognize why you need life. And that's because the verdict is out, John said. Death is on the whole world. And you have to have life. Now John the Baptist comes along and he recaps that. Now he wasn't there, but two men of God speaking by the Spirit of God are saying the same thing. Isn't it funny? What Jesus refers to as light, John refers to as Life, just like we have been since the beginning of the book of John. And he says, if you believe in him, you have eternal life. If not, God's wrath remains on you. See, that's a foreign thought to most people. Most people think of the judgment and the wrath as something to come. The wrath is already there. It has to be removed. See, you're not in a state of perfection and then you taint it through bad behavior and then you get saved. You are born into a disobedient system where everybody around you is disobedient to God and the result of that is death. And you have to be saved from it. That's the entire point of what it meant for Jesus to be lifted up. You were supposed to look up, see the symbol of sin and judgment and go, wow, 
that should be me up there. That should be me. I'm the one who is guilty. I'm the one who was in trouble. I need help. And the whole story about Moses and the snake was supposed to reflect on that so that people could be saved. Because God desires all men everywhere to be saved. At the same time, I'm telling you, He doesn't love everybody. There are kinds of people the Bible says He hates. He has made provision for every person to be saved. Well, how do you know? If, if I've told you some people, because they're wicked, the Bible says God hates, but He wants all men to be saved, how do you know? How do you know when you meet somebody? I'm going to cheat here a little bit ahead, and I'm going to read you one verse. We're going to close. There's something everybody needs to consider. It's in John 6, page 1184 in the Thompson Chain. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. How do you know if Jesus loves somebody? How do you know if you are a person that Jesus loves and wants? Because when you begin to feel His work in your life, when you begin to feel Him drawing you, you know He wants you. And that's how you get saved. Then it's true what the Bible says. All who will call upon the name will be saved. All who call upon the name will be saved. Leaves out no one. But not everybody will get to a place where they're willing to look at their state and call it death and need help. The whole book of John, you will see this theme from beginning to end. I'll repeat this every time. The whole book of John emphasizes man's state in death and Jesus is the life solution. When he said, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him and I will raise him up at the last day, that's life. Raised up the last day in a glorified body is what he's teaching. We'll teach that in John 6. So next time you see John 3.16 and people talking about God is love and He's loved the whole world, you need to remember the words that are right after it. And that was the verdict. All men are guilty. All men are bound over to sin and all need to be saved. John 3.16 is not an escape. It's not a Scripture that was intended for everybody to go, oh, wow, well, God, God loved us so much that He sent His Son to save us, so we're all, all right, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. He had to send His Son to save it because it was lost. Okay. Y'all, let's pray. Jesus, we love You. We thank You. Mighty God, we pray. We pray for Your drawing spirit, Your drawing power to reach people in our lives. Lord, we believe that we are Your ambassadors called by You. And Lord, we want to be Your mouthpiece. We want to speak to people about You. Holy God, we want to see You change people thoroughly. We accept, Lord, that we were men on death row. We accept that we have done things through our disobedience that is deserving of the power of death remaining on us. But Lord God, we are excited about the mercy that You've lavished on us. You've done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You've removed the power of death. You've given us life and not just any life, an abundant life. Lord, we will refuse to fear. We will refuse to be overcome. And we will love You all the days of our life. You've given us life, so we give our lives back to You. Do with us what You will. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.